person does not say my name. <laughs> um, Dave uh, asked me here uh, last minute to uh, fill in for him. He is not feeling well at all. Please, please, please pray for him. He had to run back over and uh, take it easy. Um, but today uh, we're going to look at a sermon I preached quite some years ago, and uh, hopefully none of you remember it. <laughs> but <laughs> if you do, oh well, it's good stuff. <laughs> all right, so we'll uh, we'll look at James chapter one this morning. We're going to. Look at this idea of considering it pure joy. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I preached this sermon many years ago on Father's Day, and i uh, just like to throw this in there because I have a note here written that uh, fathers are to be the manufacturers of joy for the family. Uh, the, the father should be the joy factory, in other words, for the family. If things aren't going well, dad should step in, and he needs to be the one to help bring joy. All right, let's get started. Perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker, when life hands you a lemon, make lemonade. Yes. It's easier to, to smile at that statement than to practice it, though, isn't it? It's not always easy to make lemonade out of lemons, uh, but it is a biblical idea. Throughout the Bible, we find people who turn defeat into victory, who turn their times of trial into joy, and what are some of those people? You go back through the Old Testament. Who are, who are some of those that turned extreme suffering into joy? Joseph, yes, absolutely. Who else? Job, yes. That, Job, probably the classic example. Who else? Daniel, yes, facing extreme situation in a foreign country, and he turns that difficulty into triumph, doesn't he? So, Ultimately, we think into the New Testament, who turned suffering into joy? Jesus, yes, the most extreme suffering. And they became victors instead of victims of circumstance. The epistle of James tells us that we can have the same experience today as Christians. Whether we're dealing with trials or temptations... If we have faith in God and in Christ Jesus, we can experience true joy. But the key to turning trials into joy, James says that we need to first consider. And uh, so we'll start here, James chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1, says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. I think it's interesting we read scripture that we, we ask, what is the writer not saying? Okay, we can see what he is saying, but what is he not saying? And what does James not say here? He, sa he doesn't say if, but when. Okay. It's not if we're going to face trials. It's when. Every single one of us are going to face difficulty. The Christian especially should expect trials. Jesus told us in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. James says that the nature of these trials are various. That there's going to be many ways in which we face trials, many types this word could mean the ordinary troubles of life, 
the persecution for the faith, the temptation to do evil. James brings up the idea of facing trials a second time in the same chapter in verse 12 in the context of overcoming temptation. So some trials can come simply because we're human, that we live in a finite existence, that we have to deal with the pressures and the stress of just the physical world, sickness and accidents, disappointments, death. Other trials come because we are Christians. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, fill in the blank, anyone know? Persecuted. So it's not, in, it's not if we are persecuted, it's when we're persecuted. Because if we are living a godly life in Christ, we will face persecution. The bottom line is Satan and his army of evil is fighting constantly against us. The world opposes us, and we can expect trials. One father remembers coming home one afternoon to discover that the kitchen he had worked at so hard to clean only a few hours before was now in a terrible wreck. My young daughter had obviously been cooking, and the ingredients were scattered, along with dirty bowls and utensils across the counter and floor. I was not happy with the situation, and then as I looked a little more closely at the mess, I spied a tiny little note on the table, clumsily written and smeared with chocolatey fingerprints, and the message was short. I'm making something for you, Dad, signed your angel. And in the midst of that disarray and despite my irritation, joy suddenly sprang in my heart, sweet and pure. My attention had been redirected from the problem to the little girl I loved. As I encountered her in that brief note, I delighted in her with her simple goodness and focus. I could take pleasure in seeing her hand at work in a situation that seemed otherwise disastrous. How many times is this true of our joy in the Lord? Many times life looks messy. It's hard to find much to be happy about in trying circumstances. Nevertheless, if we look hard enough, we can usually see God behind it all. At least working through it all. What is to be the Christian's response to trials? What does it mean to have joy, pure joy? And we need to ask the question, what is joy? Joy is not the same as happiness. What is the main difference between joy and happiness? Anybody? What's the difference? Okay, peace of mind. What else? Yeah. Okay, yes. Sometimes we use that phrase, happiness is, uh, is determined by what happens, right? Whatever's going on in life, that determines whether I'm happy or not. But how is joy different from happiness? Yeah. Joy is constant, yes. Consistent. Joy is the, the hope, having a hope in something beyond this life, beyond the difficulty, 
The word happiness comes from the word happen. If we have good things happen to us, we're happy. If we have bad things happen to us, we're sad. The joy is not determined by our attitude, our response to the events of the day. Joy is determined by our relationship with the Lord. And we can face difficult situations because we know the end. We know what's in store for us in eternity. This was the attitude of the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. We're told the apostles left the Sanhedrin after being persecuted. They rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Over and over they were beaten, thrown into prison, threatened. How many times was Paul beaten? Several. Yeah, he was left for dead. Went through all types of persecution and suffering, but did not lose his joy. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, he says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And see, this was the attitude of Jesus as well on the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy set before him. He endured the cross. How, how could you have joy in going to a painful, agonizing death? How could he possibly stay on the cross for you and for me? It was because of the joy that he knew he would experience. So the first step to considering our many trials as joy is to thank God for all situations and adopt a joyful attitude. But how is it possible to rejoice in the midst of the trial? Our second point is found in, in verse 3. James says there, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so we're to realize that trials test our faith. When our faith is tested, it brings out the best in us, oftentimes. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Hold your place there in James. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so what happens when metal is heated? You've got a few people here who work with metal every day. What happens when metal is heated? What's that? Okay, it expands. What if you heat metal to the extreme point where it's, it melts, okay, and it turns into liquid, and then, I think I heard it, yes, the impurities float to the top, don't they? And that's how they can purify metal, and they can take off those impurities, and every time they, they let it cool and reheat it and let it cool and reheat, you can, be, you can get it more and more pure. That's how they, they make gold pure and silver pure. 
the impurities or the dross rises to the top and it can be drawn off. And what is left after the impurity is taken away? The pure metal. That which has been tested. And just as fire purifies metal, trials help to strengthen our faith, to help us to be more complete. So that the testing works for us, not against us. Now that's not easy when you're in the middle of a trial. When you're in the middle of the difficulty, what do you want to do? You want to fix it. You want it to be done right now. I want to get this over with. Let's do whatever it takes, right? God says use that trial for the benefit of your faith. Don't use it as something against you. Don't let the devil use it as something to tear you down. Because the trial is going to help you to mature. Having this understanding about trials can accomplish, what trials can accomplish enables us to have a joyful attitude even through those trials. But to really benefit from the trial, we need to allow perseverance to finish its work. And that's what James says in verse 4. To turn trials into joy, we must let perseverance do its work. Too often, we want to get our trials over with quickly. We want to fix it as fast as we can. But there are times when the best course of action is to bear up under the trial patiently. To endure the trial without grumbling and complaining. And in doing so, God can use us. He can use this as a great example of what it means to be joyful, to patiently endure the trial, to do good despite the trial, to serve Him more despite the trial. So the word perfect in the Scripture doesn't mean sinlessness. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It means maturity. In the New Testament, it's used of those who have attained a spiritual maturity in Christ who have reached a mature understanding of spiritual matters, those who are no longer babes in Christ. And such maturity comes only as perseverance has had its time to work. Consider, for example, the endurance runner. Paul likes to use this example of a runner, the person training and running in a marathon, and how the Christian life is kind of like that. And that we have to do a lot to persevere. The runner runs patiently, mile after mile after training. He can't run the marathon right away. If I were to go out and sign up for a marathon and run it next week, how far am I going to (laughs) get? Those of you that know me, you know that I absolutely detest running. I hate. I know there are a lot of people that love it. Right? That's fine. If you like doing that sort of thing and like to go bang your knees all. You know, for hours at a time, that's fine. I can't handle that. But I wouldn't do very well because I haven't trained. I haven't prepared for that difficulty. Now, relate that back to our faith. The Christian who hasn't been around the Lord's table in a while. I haven't read the Word of God for... Months at a time. I don't have much serious prayer time. 
daily with the Lord. Then when the trial comes, how am I going to take it? What is my faith going to be like? How much damage is the devil going to be able to do in that circumstance? Because I haven't considered it pure joy because I haven't done the hard work of staying close to my Lord. It's going to be difficult to keep my joy in that difficulty. If we wish to run the race well, spiritually speaking, we must develop this perseverance. And it only comes through spiritual training. And when the runner finally competes in the race, their training is put to the test. And it's the same with the Christian. As we overcome each trial, our ability to persevere will increase. On January 16, 1995, Rachel Barton of Winnetka, Illinois, commuted home on the train. Slung over her shoulder was her Amati violin worth $300,000 on loan from a benefactor. Rachel is a violin prodigy who first appeared as a soloist in the Chicago Symphony at the age of eight. The train stopped at the Elm Street station, and as she exited, tragedy struck. Somehow, she got caught in the door, and the train started moving again. Michael Lev, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, wrote, Barton was dragged beneath the train for several hundred feet before a bystander heard the screams and notified a railroad official to stop the train. The huge wheels had severed her leg below the knee and had seriously damaged her right leg. Rescue workers and two passengers who used their belts as tourniquets saved Barton's life. Two months and eight surgeries later, she held a press conference, sitting in a wheelchair, beaming a beautiful smile, wearing a glowing red dress, and she talked about her plans to someday walk again. And she had plans to perform with the violin in the fall. She was already practicing the violin several hours per day. That's someone who takes tragedy and overcomes the trial because she had something greater to live for. We have, as Christians, the greatest reason, the greatest purpose to live. We've been given the greatest commission. We call it the Great Commission. To go into all the world, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to immerse them, into Christ, and to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded us. We have the greatest reason to live. Are we showing it in the trial? Do we have this joy that James is talking about? When we face traumatic pain and loss, we have a choice. We can focus on the past. We can focus on the failures. We can focus on the injury, the disappointment, the death. Or we can focus on the future. 
the gifts that God has given me, the potential for greater things. Those who are overcomers dream of the music they have yet to play because their joy is found in the promises of God. But letting perseverance finish its work is not easy. It requires wisdom, which enables us to see the value of our trials. And that's why James says in verses 5 through 8, that if you lack wisdom, you should ask God. And this is probably one of the most overlooked promises of God. God's promise to give us wisdom liberally, generously, if we just ask for it. He will not fault us for coming to Him and asking Him for wisdom. Who is the wisest person in the Bible? Bible trivia. It's a, not a hard question. Solomon. Remember what, what did Solomon ask for? And what did God give him? Yeah, God gave him wisdom. But he said, because you are willing to ask for that, I'm going to give you the things you didn't ask for as well. What is wisdom? It's to be distinguished from knowledge. Knowledge simply involves information, the facts. But wisdom is the ability, the insight to properly use those facts the best way that we can according to the will of God. Those who support and teach the wisdom of man greatly outnumber those who teach the wisdom of God today. What does the Bible say about the wisdom of men? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 18. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews, they demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, 
That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Where do we find the greatest wisdom? In the Word of God. Many today, even Christians, find themselves in difficult situations because they have accepted the wisdom of the world rather than study the Scripture and find the wisdom of God. Paul states that the Jews, they put a lot of emphasis on signs and wonders. The Greeks, they, they sought after man's wisdom. But Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. And that was a difficult thing for both of those groups. Neither wanted to accept Christianity because they thought it was foolishness. Many today look at the church and they think that Christians are foolish. They think Christianity is foolishness. Wisdom is not going to come as some infused superhuman knowledge. We're only going to learn it if we study the Word of God. Another primary component to being able to counter the trials and to consider them as joy is to have a proper prayer life. James mentions this in verses 6 through 8. He says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not accept, expect to receive anything from the Lord. And such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So he says, ask in faith. Ask and don't doubt. When you pray, do you really have the faith that it will happen? Do we pray specific enough about the prayers that we want to see answered? We sometimes pray very generally. We say, Lord, please help the church to grow. Lord, help the sick in the hospital. Pray for people to become Christians. And we pray that the Lord will forgive us of our sins. And he says, pray for the church to grow. How many? Pray for the sick in the hospital. Who is it? What are they dealing with? Pray for people to become Christians. Who? What opportunities do you have? Pray that God's going to forgive me of my sins. And he says, which ones? Sometimes we allow other things to keep us from praying, worry, anxiety. But doubting in our prayer is like praying for rain and leaving home without the umbrella. If we pray that way, how do we expect God to answer our prayers? We need to remember that God's answer may not be our answer. He may say yes, no, maybe, maybe now, maybe later. Prayer is powerful. And James says, it's some, says something about this in James 5.16 when he says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And the person who doubts is like the wave of the sea, a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. I'm convinced that the joyless Christian 
for that matter, the unhappy Christian, is the person who is trying to do what God says that you cannot do. Many want to try to be on the Lord's side and on the side of the world. They want to make God first in their life, but they also make other things primary. It's only when we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness that we are able to have true joy. And the reason many people do not have a joy-filled life is because they are trying to live fully devoted to God and fully devoted to the world. And he says it's not possible. So the key factors to considering trials as pure joy having the knowledge and perspective that trials can accomplish a lot of good, that we patiently endure those difficulties as we become more mature in our faith, and we use the wisdom that God gives in answer to our prayers and through study of His Word to help us persevere. And when those things are done, we can get through the most difficult seasons of life. Jesus said that his yoke is easy. That his burden is light. How could he say such a thing? Knowing what he would go through, knowing what his disciples would go through, knowing what the apostles would go through, what the early church would go through, what Christians today go through, how could he say his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Because he expected us to consider it pure joy, even when we face trials of many kinds. Are you done looking for answers where there are none? Compared to the glory of heaven, the troubles of this world seem very small. The way of Christ is the only way. The way of Christ is the only joy-filled if you're ready to experience that kind of life, to start that kind of life today, we're going to offer an opportunity for you to do that. So guys, come up here to play an invitation song. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you're ready to confess that before others. And you said, I want to start living for him rather than for my own pursuits. Today is the day to start that journey. And it begins in the waters of the baptistry. When you're immersed into Christ, you receive two great gifts, the forgiveness of sins and the promised indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit, as we're told in Acts 2.38. And if you need to begin that walk today, we invite you to come as we sing a song.